Do we understand what Christian faith is? Andy Root is Associate Professor of Youth and Family Ministry at Luther Seminary. In this episode, he sits down with us to talk about his book, Faith Formation in a Secular Age. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. I assume you are drawing on the work of Charles Taylor. Can you set the stage for us? <laughs> well, first of all, I'm just thrilled that uh, you made that connection. So, yeah, I have become um, fairly obsessed, I think is, I think that's a legitimate way to say it. Well, his book makes a good doorstop. It makes an incredible doorstop or weapon if necessary or can stop a flying bullet or something, a thick, thick book. So, uh, yeah, I read that book probably, I mean, it was released in 2007, and I think I reviewed it for some journal in 2009 and, you know, confession here is like I think I understood it enough to review it whether it was a good review is a really good question but and what is he unpacking in that book yeah so the book is a secular age and what the way I tell students is that there's just one question that he needs 900 pages to unpack and the one question is why in 1500 in the western world was it nearly impossible to not believe in God it was really hard to find someone who didn't believe in God but in a short relatively speaking, historically, a short 500 years, it's not only, you know, if you go to 2000 and beyond, it's not only possible to live uh, without God, it's actually more difficult for those of us who believe in God to have that be plausible than than uh, than not. So that's... I mean, so it's, why was it so easy to believe in God? If you can <laughs> summarize 900 pages. Yeah, so this is what makes Taylor's perspective so, so genius, is he tells it as what he calls a zigzag story. So it's never a, it's never a, kind of a home run. It's never one, one kind of thing. There are multiple things kind of in, in, in discourse. Um, so it's a long history. The whole last 500 years um, has done this. But what seems pretty profound to me is that ultimately um, what makes Taylor so interesting is that he thinks it is only a society who deeply, 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 deeply wants to follow God that could actually create the conditions to have a society that doesn't believe in God. So it's the Reformation in many ways. I mean, he's a Catholic writing this, but it's the Reformation that releases, didn't have to go this way, but released the conditions that would eventually lead to a society where we don't need to, to have a God. Now, what he means by that is that what the Reformation does is it blurs a line between what is sacred and what is secular, and it basically says all life now is sacred. Whether you, it's not just a cathedral, it's not just being a priest with a host, whether you milk a cow or change a baby's diaper, that is a holy act done before God. So everything all of ordinary life gets raised to the level of actually being sacred. Now, what I'll, eventually you 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 affirm ordinary life to that extent, and you, then you kind of raise it so high. Uh, other conditions come in that allow people to kind of flip that and actually think, well, if everything is just sacred, what if everything was just secular? Um, so, so it introduces a level of sameness. It introduces a level of sameness that that can eventually turn turn on us. And it's quite complicated how that happens, but I think in, in many ways that has happened. And one of the ways he talks about it is just kind of a disembedding where once where you lived was where you worshipped and where you worshipped was kind of how you voted in a political party. All those things were kind of embedded and we live in a world now where those things are quite disembedded. Um, so it's hard for people to find coherence in even their day-to-day lives about how it relates um, to God. And those are all interesting, but what I'm really trying to get at in this book is just to talk about how um, faith, uh, the way we've talked about faith formation, has not taken into consideration the real issue that, as Taylor describes it, 
that we've really looked at faith formation and and we've been drawn to very distinct pragmatic actions like what do we have to do to keep kids from leaving the church what what do we have to do to keep them from becoming nuns or to um and o-n-e-s yes that's right um keep them from uh, just disaffiliating really or drifting away from from faith and um, my point is uh, that when we kind of reduce things to just those questions we miss the larger issue which is uh, transcendence or the reality of divine action is becomes implausible and so if we can't think about how to proclaim faith or think about faith as an encounter with divine action and just make it about kind of institutional affiliation, um, then we kind of concede to the secular age, even though we're trying to oppose it. So what, sticking with the idea of the secular age for just a minute longer, how do you define what the secular age is? Yeah. So I mean, we can stick with North American Christianity. And that's all, and then that's all that Taylor himself wants to talk about. He just says, he wants to talk about the leftovers from Latin Christendom. Hence us, the those in the kind of North Atlantic um, kind of region, so Western Europe and North America. So what's a secular? I mean, a, a lot of what he's trying to get at is what actually does it mean to be secular? And uh, so he doesn't, he wants to move beyond thinking about it as the secularization theory that we that we do still have in sociology, the sense that our religious institutions um, are weakening, fewer people are going to church. Things that may be an issue in, in Western countries, but that's not the real issue. What really makes us secular people is that the plausibility structures, the, the, the all belief in um, kind of a, a transcendent force and a personal God have become contested. And even if you believe them, they're contested. So a beautiful thing that Taylor says that I find really quite provocative for those in ministry is that in this secular, in this kind of secular age, all believers doubt. There's no way to believe and not doubt. But, and this is what makes Taylor so interesting, all doubters sometimes believe. And we're kind of stuck in that area. That you might think that this world is nothing but material, certain form of naturalism, but then your first baby's born. Or then you follow that that you know band that you love to this concert, and it's a beautiful night, and you have this kind of experience. So there's ways that you kind of are fused. He actually calls this the Nova effect, where these kind of these third ways of spirituality kind of kind of spring up. So and even, is that an experience of transcendence that you might not be able to articulate as yeah. such? Yeah, that you can't articulate and then often has no direct connection to certain trusted, known, organized forms of religion. So how do we think about um, faith formation? That word, um, people listening probably would describe faith formation differently. Mm-hmm. So how are you using that term um, and what are we trying to unpack? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I'm trying to actually say in this and, and to look at is how all of these more popular forms of faith formation, that particularly you can find the youth ministry world, but beyond that as well, uh, that ironically they never really define what faith is. And I think what the second half of the book, what I try to get into is what, what does Paul really mean by faith and it's it's a quite more complicated concept than it's just trusting something and then you trust it and therefore you affiliate to an institution and therefore you're loyal to your kind of religious commitment and I think that's kind of an unfair way to say it I think probably the people who are writing those faith formation kind of curriculums and 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 books would say well we mean something a little bit more complicated but it is just really ironic or telling to me that they don't really have to define or they don't feel the necessity to find what faith is, which to me then, what's happened, 
um, in my critique is that they've conceded all conceptions of faith over to sociologists. So the sociologists tell us that people are less affiliated, that people are marking none on the variables of a of a um, of a survey, um, and that becomes the call to warn. But we never thought about how Paul or even just the biblical text in general, really talks about what faith is. And that may change the way we think about how faith is formed in people. or how. And so when I say faith formation, how, how do people come uh, to encounter, to... I, I think we would sometimes say, how do people come to own their faith? Or how do they come to, to kind of um, see it as something significant to their to their personhood? Um, and so and so what, what processes are really necessary for that to happen Uh, so before a secular age would people have even understood what we mean when we say something like faith formation they may have like in certain catholic traditions they may have used that word but my guess i this is i don't quite go to the depth of this but this is my this is my educated guess is that particularly in protestantism it's not something most people would have said and maybe um even in, in catholicism when people said it they would mean something quite different than we mean it now um, I think what we mean now is that you that the the process of faith formation leads you to be loyal to um, one activity over the other in, in many ways, or uh, kind of one affiliate one one way you're going to spend um, your time and affiliate over over another. So it feels like a reaction to. <laughs> it feels like it's a reaction to what sociologists have called faith drifting. And so the objective here is to try to upend, to stop. It's it's trying to put this kind of stopper in the sink to keep faith from draining out of the sink. And my analogy is the issue isn't that the sink isn't isn't uh, stopped up. The issue is that the whole sink is at the bottom of the ocean. Like the whole world has changed. That 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 uh, belief itself has become. Uh, unbelievable to to young people, um, to all people in some sense. Um, we have to reimagine how we'll, we'll actually talk about that. Does that get at where you're, you're trying yeah, to go? Yeah, it does. Go? I just, so, yeah. so what I am curious about as a parent, yeah. as a Christian, as someone who does love the institutional church but is really wide-eyed yeah. about the fact that that institution is changing mm-hmm. and has changed, um, and I hear a lot of people talk about they don't want to react out of fear, but they do have a desire for mm-hmm. their children and their young people to follow Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you see a path forward um, if the sink is at the bottom of the ocean? Yeah. I do. Um, so one of the things that I try to articulate in this book is there's only so much you can work with Taylor in one book, and this is the first of three volumes, so there'll be two other books I'll try to pick up what Taylor's doing. So this one, I really just focus on what he calls his age of authenticity, which is kind of a post sixties, um, age. The best way that he defines authenticity and being in an age of authenticity is that we presume almost as an ethic that, um, well, as an ethic, he thinks that, um, everyone has a right to define for themselves what it means to be human. Yeah. So we have this just commitment to individual individuality and authenticity yes and i mean probably the best example is i don't know if you've watched survivor if you watched a long time ago yeah okay well well in in two weeks ago i don't know when people are listening to this but a few weeks ago in this this most recent season um one of the contestants uh during tribal council was um he's transgender and hadn't told the rest of of the 
tribe that and then another um, person kind of outed them. Uh, another gay guy actually outed this transgender person. And everyone's rea- – it was an ethic. Everyone's reaction was absolutely not. You have no right to help to, – to say how one, another person wants to define themselves. They, every, everyone is free to define themselves how, how, they, how they want to define them. And Taylor's point is that's a good thing. I mean that's actually a, a, a very good thing. The self-determining – that it's an ethic that we that we respect that everyone has a right to define for themselves what it means to be human, but it also leads us. We haven't really figured out completely how how to live in that, and the church particularly hasn't figured out really what that means. And is is there any such thing as normative structures then, and and how do how do we work that out? So at one level, I'm I'm like Taylor trying to affirm that there's a lot of good things about um, the age of authenticity, but Taylor has this in a, in a lecture he also says that he wants to affirm this kind of ethic and that this ethic is a good thing but there are also some superficial elements to this and he points to certain forms of consumerism and things like that so what i try to do following taylor in the first part of this book is do like he does a kind of historical genealogy philosophical genealogy that looks at how the more superficial elements of the age of authenticity has been this very close connection with what I call youthfulness, where now everyone's trying to be 21 forever um, or whatever. Is that what the store is called? 19 forever? Forever 21. Forever 21. Yeah. There, okay. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so uh, don't shop there. Um, but uh, so trying to show that there is the church is uh, my sense is the church has been kind of captivated by this sense of youthfulness in the age of authenticity. And why, and what what this means for us is that the church isn't all that interested, this is an overstatement, but maybe points to a truth, the church isn't all that interested in the humanity of young people, but they are interested in having our institutions still have a sense and aura of youthfulness because youthfulness means authentic and authentic and authentic wins the day. So if you want your institution to still be vital, whether it's a church, whether it's a political party, whether it's a product, you got to get the 18 to 35 year old market. Why do you have to get the 18 to 35 year old market? They don't have more disposable income than the people over 65. But if you get the 18 to 35 year old, it means your product is authentic. And if it's authentic, it holds veracity and it's worth being committed to. So um, I think that there is this kind of negative element to youthfulness. And so the big critique of the church is that um, not like if you were to rewind 500 years with Luther and the problem with the church was that it served a false god that it had become the Pope had become demon-possessed, that, that there's, this was a big issue. Most people's critique of the church today is that it's boring. And that boring becomes a huge critique. And at one level, we can think that's really superficial. But at another level, it's not superficial. It says that um, as I try to construct what it means to be human, as I look for authenticity, this institution does not help me in that. So at, at a certain level, it is superficial. At another level... It points to different ways that meaning is being constructed and, and things like that. So what I actually want to do in the first half of the book is push against some of the superficial ways that authenticity has take, taken on this this almost glorification of youthfulness and then try to turn. I think the only way forward, and this is really what's helpful about Taylor, is you can't discard, you can't flush, you can't get rid of the secular age we live in. There's this. This is an unthought. This is something that's in the air. This is a social imaginary. It's not even a social theory that we've consented to. This is just some, the way we imagine it. So there's no way to kind of turn this back. But is there, through authenticity itself, a way to talk about 
what faith is and how it's formed. And I do think so. I think that it, it raises experience to being an essential thing, and it leads us back into being actually communities that go back to Paul. And what Paul thinks, I think what Paul thinks faith is, is trusting in the very concrete experience of the risen Christ that he's encountered and building his churches around people testifying to this living Christ has come to us in the depth of our experience. And so for Paul, there's this kind of movement where his his own life reenacts the life um, and death of Jesus Christ. So his story now takes on this kind of form. And I think um, a way forward with the church, even in the age of authenticity, is to create these spaces where people narrate their experience and actually tell their death stories, their, their death experiences, and that we actually find faith when we confess those death experiences. I was wondering, when you were talking about the church's yeah. fixation on authenticity and the way that they see that in young people, I was actually wondering if the church is actually running away from death yeah. and trying to seek youthfulness um, instead of embracing the role that it has always played in saying death is actually the thing that we are yeah. least afraid of. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. In, in, in Not even in like... Um, you know, uh, 15th century plagues are going to wipe out a third of our, you know, like you can see the Reformation is kind of in some sense built around the walking dead becoming real. I mean, we can't even imagine what it must have been like for a third of a village to just simply be wiped out by plague. Um, so it's at that level. But I think what the age of authenticity also raises is just it's a lot of pressure that you get to define what it means for you to be human. Um and the de- death experiences as rejection, as confusion, as loneliness become quite ripe in the age of authenticity. And um, I think instead of seeing faith as kind of a protector from those experiences, I think Pauline theology particularly calls us into leaning into those experiences to actually find the spirit of Jesus Christ present ministering life out of death in those experiences. So I think you're right that the church is glorifies youthfulness because it's afraid of the death of its institutional its institutional structure instead of kind of creating space for our very experiences of the death experience to be bore and be ministered to and out of that experience of of ministry um, of being ministered to and ministering to another we actually find the inner encounter with the, the living Christ is there a point at which you're uncomfortable with um So I don't know that anyone would disagree with embracing um, opportunities for young people to experience uh, more opportunities for testimony and Mm. to articulate their faith and for the whole church community to become a space in which that becomes more normative. Are you at all worried that um, that kind of individualism would somehow take precedent over uh, the communal identity? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a it's it's a great question. I I do. have that where I really have that concern in the age of authenticity is any ability to kind of make any any way of doing moral reasoning I think you need a community to be able to ask questions of like what is good what are actually the goods that we bend our lives towards versus I have my definition of good you have your definition of good but we can't reach a common definition of what we can't reach yeah and actually if you find this community to be restrictive or a offensive to you and your definition of good then there's you're really obligated to opt out of this community to leave this community maybe even you know have a a dirty facebook post against this community um 
that that does really um, I mean I, I'm, I'm concerned about that I, I I think there's no way to look at what Paul actually thinks of faith outside of real communal structures because it's not just your experience um, I think and this I've been inspired by some colleagues and thinking about Paul this way that Paul is actually saying what gives him the authority to talk about this is the experience he had with the living Jesus but it's but when he goes and he builds his churches I, essentially what Paul says is um, some of you have had this a similar experience with the living Jesus. Some of you haven't, but you have to trust those of us who have, um, in the sense that it's it's this this coming this Jesus coming to us is for the community and is to be continued to be remembered, proclaimed, retold, testified. So the testimony um, and you know Mandy Drury's work has been so helpful and really well done on this that uh, the testimony is always for the community. It's for the community to encounter the living Christ again in this. In in this, so um, you know where testimony goes bad, and where you know uh, we get uncomfortable with it, where it becomes some kind of glorified individual story of um, triumph, or of you know you were selling blue meth, and then you finally found Jesus in in Albuquerque, and now everything is okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a Breaking Bad reference. Yes, yeah. thank you. Yeah. Caught that one. So I think some young people would identify with the age of authenticity. Some of them would also self-identify with experiencing this age as an age of reason mm-hmm. and an age of science. Um, and so they want to believe something if it is reasonable. Mm-hmm. Um, so how has your research on science and youth ministry um, informed your views on this conversation? Yeah. Um, I, I Well, it won't surprise you, but I'm pretty convinced by Taylor's take on the scientific revolution and what 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 that does and, and so taylor wants to really affirm that the impact of science has had quite a big impact on the way people think of faith the way that people think of divine action the way they think of transcendence but we can also oversell its impact um that it's it maybe isn't is sometimes people think that it's the knockdown thing like everyone believed and then science came along and now no one could believe again we didn't have science before we had religion and now that we've discovered science yes we don't need religion anymore right and i think taylor would say that is uh misguided reasoning um so science has played its part but the big part that it's played and i think this is pretty significant to all of my work that i hopefully am making even more and more clear as we go here in this in this book is that one of the things that science does is it does make it plausible for us to presume that the universe is an impersonal place that essentially everything in it is impersonal and there's a propaganda move that quote-unquote science makes and I think one of the things I'm trying to do in my science work which is another book we can talk about another time um, but is that uh, I really believe Taylor on this is that there's nothing in any of the scientific proofs or scientific theories that would rule out a personal world however there is a certain almost scientific religion uh, you think of the Richard Dawkins here, as you could even think of someone like Neil deGrasse Tyson, who are really kind of, uh, they're very much in the kind of vein of scientism, almost where science is their religion. And they they say something um, throughout the culture that it does really impact young people, which they say, listen, the science shows the world's an impersonal place. Again, Taylor's point, science doesn't show that. Um, but the propaganda move is, if you're the kind of person who needs a personal God in the universe, that's like totally cool for you. But I'm the kind of person who's outgrown that. So it's a stance of maturity. I'm the kind of mature person who can face it. This is just a completely impersonal world. Um, and you just live and you, you, you die. Um, Taylor's point is no scientific proofs have ever 
actually really proven that. I mean, it opens up big questions that we have to wrestle with. So for me, especially in part two of, of this Faith Formation in a Secular Age book, I think we just have to do a lot of work. And I've tried to do this in youth ministry, and I think ministry is a, quite a beautiful place to do it, is we really have to be able to to make a case, to embody, to live how this world remains a personal place. And I think what's fairly ironic about the age of authenticity that comes out of what Taylor calls the imminent frame of this 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 kind of secular age I'm talking about is that the this this imminent frame tends to say that this is only an impersonal universe but the age of authenticity tends not to be able to live with that so there's an internal contradiction within the time that we live within that if I am a person who gets to decide what it means for me to be human then my experience is pretty important in my own personhood kind of drives me out to kind of figure out who I am and what the world is um, man that seems at, at one level if I'm really to be honest with how deeply at a conscious level at, 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 a, at the level of practice that I look to embody my personhood it seems like that would at least point to the possibility that the universe has some kind of there's some kind of personal reality echoing echoing through it so I, and I really do think that what this, where this takes me, um, is to try to, to to explore how faith formation has to be really thought through. The, what the the ancient church fathers called hypostasis, this sense that um, we have our being in and through um, relationship, in and through kind of personhood. To kind of use someone like John Zazulis or someone like that. Um, and so thinking about, we talked about death experiences, but death experiences can can become almost fundamentally um, spiritually abusive when they're cut out from actual hypostatic encounter, encounter with your person that hears your narrative, that hears your story, that shares in your death experience and creates actually a zone where um, you can be ministered to, where I can actually share in your experience. So what I'm trying to do, actually, this is quite maybe, I don't know if the reader will like this or not, but um, trying to even oppose something like moral therapeutic deism with thinking about hypostasis, kenosis, theosis, the sense that uh, sharing in the experience of another by taking on a canonic element of actually sharing in their death experience leads to a transformational reality. And that's what actually faith is, trusting in this kind of movement of Jesus' own life that calls us to see the humanity of the other, to see the personality of the other, um, to humbly become their minister as opposed to their lord or master or something. And that in the midst of that dynamic, there's a transformation in the spirit in, in a significant way. You've been listening to The Distillery. Interviews are conducted by me, Sherry Osting. I'm Garrett Mostowski, and I'm in charge of production. And I'm Christy Holly, and I'm the creative designer. Like what you're hearing? Let us know by rating us on iTunes. The Distillery Podcast is part of The Thread, a production of Princeton Theological Seminary's Office of Continuing Education. You can find more episodes and other content at thethread.ptsem.edu. Thanks for listening.